If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to John 20. I had a really like clever introduction for today. Uh, worked on it, worked on it a lot. Like wrote like three or four different intros into this message. But as I was sitting here and, and y'all were singing, I'll just go ahead and warn you, I'm going to cry. Every once in a while, Gregory walks in on a Sunday morning and just smiles. And I know what he's doing. He's going to make me cry. And I get mad at him at first, but then I like it. (laughs) I just remember being like in high school. I wasn't a great athlete, so please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here today. Uh, but I, I was on a good team, and uh, there were those moments every once in a while where you're in the locker room before a game. You know what I mean? Maybe you don't. It, you do that before the game. You go in the locker room, you get dressed. Uh, if you're playing football, you put on your pads, you put on your helmet, and somebody tries to say something really cool, usually a coach, and he fails miserably, but you don't care because you're a high school kid, so you just start getting all amped up, and, and you know that you're about to take the field and... And you cannot lose. Like, you just can't. It's not possible. It doesn't matter what the other team's doing. It doesn't matter what that other guy and all of his inspiration in the locker room saying. You just cannot lose that fight. And uh, that's what it feels like this morning. It's like you guys just did a victory chant before we even started the game. So I'm lost already, which is great. So I just invite you to stand with me. Let's just get into it here. Let's go John 20. Stand with me. We stand here because uh, the Word of God is our only foundation that we can stand on. We stand here under His authority, and we stand because in this moment, more than anything else, you will hear from me. In this moment, the King is speaking. We go John 20, and we're going to read the first 18 verses. Now, on the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And so Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day. Man, we thank you for the opportunity to be here in this place together with your people under your rule and under your reign. And we thank you for the cross. We thank you for paying the penalty for us. And we thank you for the empty tomb that seals that. And we pray now that you would speak to us. That is, as, as much as you can, that you would move my stammering, babbling, slurring tongue out of the way so that you might speak to us, open our eyes, unstop our ears, Lord, awaken our souls this morning that we might draw near to you. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last year, uh, during spring break, our family took a trip up to Washington, D- Washington D.C., and we tried to do as much of the like touristy activity as we possibly could pack into our few days up there. So we went to uh, to like the Library of Congress, and we saw that, and they had Jefferson's actual library, and that was pretty cool. And then we walked over to the Capitol building, and we saw all sorts of stuff in the like the Air and Space Museum, and, and we went over to the Museum of American History and saw all that stuff. It was super cool. They had like Indiana Jones's hat and whip in the same room with an actual Batmobile, just the coolest thing in the world, right? And it was it was great. We stood in the line in the rain to get into the Museum of Natural History. Uh, we had watched uh, Night at the Museum, like the second one where he goes, and, uh, and so we were all psyched to see that place, and I promise you, I- I'm not making this up. Uh, we walked into the main room, like the big like rotunda of this place. We walk in, and the big exhibit, the big like crown achievement exhibit in the place was this big, giant elephant standing in the middle of the room, and our youngest, he was four at the time, he looked up at me, he was in a stroller, looks up at me, shrugs his shoulders, and says, Daddy, that thing's not even alive. (laughs) It was the same look of disappointment you get from a kid when they open like a birthday card and there's no gift card in there, you know, it's just like, wow, This this is the result of growing up in a town with a really great zoo, you know, you can't impress them. And so we walked through that place for an hour or so, we saw birds, we saw insects, we saw reptiles, we saw mammals, saw fish, we saw like fish and penguins, and we saw lions, and just about every animal that you can imagine, and not a single one, not even one, was alive. And then in one section, there was this huge crowd, it was a huge crowd. They were all sort of gathered around this one particular display. And so we, we like put on, we're not, we're not, we're non-confrontational as a family generally in public. And so we put on like our big boy pants and big girl pants and we fought our way through there to get to this exhibit so that we could see what all the fuss was about. I, I was driving a stroller, ran over a guy's foot, thought that was going to be the end right there. It was just a nightmare, right? Everybody's taking pictures. Kids are posing and smiling. We're like, what are they looking at? 
It's got to be something good. And so eventually we persevered, and we got to the window, and lying there behind the glass was a genuine Egyptian mummy. And it was weird. Okay? You could see the face, see the teeth, you could see the linen cloth, you could see the whole deal just right there behind the glass. And in the midst of that, it occurred to me, it occurred to me that it wasn't just a mummy, but that it had been a person. It was a person who lived a life, a person who had a family and friends. You know, as I've been thinking about this passage for the last couple of weeks, knowing that as we made our way through the Gospel of John, that eventually we'd get to this part. And I was trying to put myself in the shoes of those first witnesses at Jesus' tomb. I couldn't help but think about that poor mummy up there in D.C. And it occurred to me, something obvious, but something true, that not a soul in that Smithsonian Museum suspected for even a moment that whoever that guy was, or whoever he had been, nobody even thought for a second that he would get up and start moving around again. We never suspected that for even a moment, because why? We knew he'd been dead. We knew that he was dead. We could see it. We could see it. It was there in front of us in all its creepiness. There's just a dead body right there, thousands of years old. We knew that he wouldn't get up and walk around because he was dead. And dead people don't do anything. You know, that's the same thing that Mary understood on that first Easter morning when she went to the tomb of Jesus. Look back at verse 1 with me real quick. We see there in verse 1 that Mary Magdalene was at the tomb very early. We know that she didn't go there by herself, okay? In John's account, she, she, he's the only name she mentions, but we know she's not there by herself because, because Mark tells us that, that she was there with Mary, the mother of James, and Salome. It's this group of women who go there. This group of women. But John, as he writes this gospel, as he writes this gospel for us, he's writing it from a unique perspective. And he's, he, is, he wants us to see this event through the eyes of Mary. And so he tells us that, that what she saw when she arrived there was that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. That's what it says. The stone, that's all it says. The stone had been taken away from the tomb. And, and that's, that's what she encountered. That's the first surprise that she encountered that morning, that the stone was gone. And what's her response? Did you see it? Did you see it? See, our response in the Smithsonian was to run up to the glass, to fight our way to get up there and see the dead body. What's her response? She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. That's the first thing she said. They took him. She didn't say that Jesus is alive. She didn't say, hey guys, he's woken up. She didn't say that. She said that he, that his body had been taken. And so the idea that everyone was sitting around, you'll hear this every once in a while in our culture today. You'll hear the idea that they were just waiting for a resurrection, that resurrections were like, were like a common part of what they expected in the first century. Not a soul, not even his first followers thought for a moment that Jesus was going to be coming back to life. Just like we didn't expect that money to, mummy to come alive, just like I've never gone, I've never once gone to a funeral expecting the person who died to get up and start walking around. 
These first Christians had no expectation that their dead teacher was or ever would be alive when they got there. And it continues there in verse 2. Look at that. She said that they had taken the Lord out of the tomb. And then she said, we do not know where they have laid him. You see, it's still, at that point, it's not even suspected. It's not even suspected. She just knows he's gone. That's it. They don't think he got up. That's not even within the realm of possibility in her mind. Her assumption, even seeing the stone rolled away, is that someone has come and taken his dead body. That's all she knows. That's all she can witness to. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She doesn't even know who the they are that she's talking about. She's just assuming it took more than one person to do it. And this is important for us to recognize. You see, if all we have, if all that we have is an empty tomb, that would not be enough. If all we have, if our faith is just based on an empty tomb, then, then we, are, we are really foolish. An empty tomb doesn't prove anything other than what Mary just said, that the body is gone. And we see that Peter and John, they don't know what's going on either. There, Did you notice that? They obviously didn't come and move the body because they're running as fast as they can to get there. And so John records that they were running first. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. And then he adds this detail. I've always loved this detail, that the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love that detail. I love that John adds that little nuance to the story. They both left together. They're running together. But the other disciple got there first. So what John's just saying, he's like, you know, I'm, I, I can run a little bit. You know, just a, just a little, just let you know. Most commentators think that's because he was younger than Peter. But at the end of the day, he won that race. He got there first. And that's a little detail that just gives a little air of authenticity to this whole thing. It's seeing it through John's eyes now. We're seeing it through John's eyes, he, individuals. But then we see Mary again. We see this woman. We see her as she, as she has run back there with the disciples. And then we see her in verse 11. Look at that. As she is weeping. That's what it says. She's weeping outside the tomb. We see her as she stoops down to look inside. Do you see the details here? These are the details that drove C.S. Lewis crazy. That the Bible has these details that just make no sense if you're just writing a myth. There's these details that she stooped and looked into the tomb. Why would it say she stooped? Because the door was low. She had to. She had to stoop. He's given these real details here. And we see her as she stoops to look inside. We see her as the two angels begin to speak with her. And we see her. We hear the angst in her voice as she expresses her confusion. Maybe you've experienced this in your life in times where it just feels like everything is spinning out of control. Everything is spinning out of control. Maybe you have found yourself in that storm. Maybe you're in one of those storms right now. Your mind is all over the place. Panic and confusion seem to be all that you know as you teeter on the brink of falling apart. Your grip on everything you know is beginning to fail and everything you knew of normal has evaporated into oblivion. It happens so quickly. We've said it so many times. We are never, we are never more than a phone call away from everything in our normal changing. It happens so quickly. That's the storm that Mary is in. And all she can do, all she can bring herself to do is weep. 
But look at what happens there in 15 and 16. Jesus has approached her. He asked her why she was weeping. He asked her who she's looking for, and we see her there. Mary is heartbroken. She's overwhelmed, and in her grief and through her tear-filled eyes, she looks at Jesus, and all she can think is this must be the gardener. All she can think to ask is if he knows, maybe this guy knows where they have taken him. Did you take him? If you did, just give him back to me and I'll go put him somewhere else. What does Jesus do? Did you see that? He doesn't respond. You know how I would have responded? I said, lady, haven't you been paying attention? Like I told you all this like 20 times. You've been with me three years and I've told you I was going to have to go in the tomb. I was going to be raised again. Remember that? Did you read the Old Testament where it said multiple times that I was going to die and come back? Have you not? Have you not? Been, that's what I would have said. You can ask my wife. She'd have been like, yeah, that's exactly what you would have said. You would have looked at me like, how come you hadn't been paying attention to me? He doesn't do that. No, what we see is that with all the gentleness, all the gentleness that love can express, he, he, what does he do? Did you see it? Look. He calls out her name. And what does she do? She recognizes the voice. It was the voice of her good shepherd calling to one of his sheep, and she recognizes it. It was the voice of God himself saying, Mary. Can can you see her in that moment? I mean, this has been a rough day for her. She's already run twice. That wasn't something they used to do back in the day. Like She's run to the disciples and now she's run back to the tomb. I mean, the poor girl is just worn out. She, is, she got up before the sun, so some of y'all have never done that, right? I know, I know, one day you will. You'll have kids. It'll be great. And you'll wake up before the sun. You'll be rocking them and you'll be like, there it is, you know, and you're, okay, I guess it's daylight. She's done all of that. This is, this is not even breakfast time at this point for most of us, and she's weeping. I mean, she was sad before the day ever started. She gets to the tomb and it goes worse for her. But can you, can you see her in this moment as she hears her name, Mary? That's what David said in Psalm 30. You remember that? Where David says to God, he prays to God that you've turned my mourning into what? You've turned it into dancing. In fact, there's this indication there that she's grabbed hold of him and he's going, hey, 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 our work's not done. My work's not done here. Don't hang on to me. I'm not who I used to be. Things have changed. Things have changed. You've turned my morning into dancing. And this is where Jesus comes and finds us. This is where Jesus comes and finds us. Jesus comes and meets us in our sorrow. He comes and meets us in our grief. He comes to us in moments of confusion and doubt. He doesn't hide from that. He's not afraid of that. He doesn't stay behind the glass as the world sort of marches by and looks. He doesn't take shelter from that storm. No, he comes out onto the waves of our tumultuous lives and he stretches out his arms so that we can find our shelter in him. He comes to us in that moment. And he doesn't just say, hey, you. He comes and he calls you by name. That's what we see with Jesus and Mary. Is that Jesus isn't afraid of your pain. He is not intimidated by your sorrow and brokenness. The reality is that's exactly where he comes and meets us. Now look at verse 19 with me here. On the evening of that day, so it's it's later in the same day, 
the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, this is what Thomas said, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Guess what? Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We saw Jesus come to Mary in the midst of her sorrow And the ocean of her brokenness, he walks out to her and we see, and here we see the resurrected Christ come to his disciples in the midst of their fear and in the midst of their defiance. We see him enter into it, even when he isn't invited. That whole detail about the doors being locked just drives people nuts. Every single commentary or biblical scholar you find, they've got a different idea about how he got in the room. Did he pick the lock? Did he climb in the window? Did he just like morph through it? We don't know. It, John does not give that detail. So anything you, anything you speculate, you can have fun with that. You can maybe do some sort of like Venn diagram with some kids or whatever. Well, we don't know. We don't know. We just know that he got in. And what that tells us is that if Jesus wants to get in, guess what? Jesus gets in. That's how it works for him. If he wants to get inside, he gets inside. And he comes to meet us even when we are not looking for him. Just like with Mary, the disciples are hurting. We tend to go after the disciples a lot. I'll I'll be honest. As we've gone through the Gospel of John, we've, we've... had a little fun with the disciples. Peter messes up a lot. All right, he, he just he just does. He's that guy. They all kind of do, um, and and that and that makes them so relatable, because I mess up all the time. I'll mess up before I get out of this parking lot today. I promise you. But they they they're a lot like us. And Thomas Thomas really gets it right. Thomas literally he had a nickname. Remember they called him the twin. Did you hear that? So evidently somebody looked like Thomas, or he had a twin. But but he gets a new name. What do we call him? Doubting Thomas. Like we actually use that as like a cultural thing. Oh, he's just a doubting Thomas. Are we used to? I don't think I've heard anybody say that in a while. People used to be more biblically literate, right? I guess. Anyway, doubting Thomas is his nickname for like all eternity. But Thomas isn't just doubting here. Thomas is wounded. Thomas is hurt. Thomas feels betrayed. Thomas is defiant. He said, I will never believe. That's not a cry of doubt. That's a cry of defiance. I will never believe. 
You know, these men had given up a lot to follow Jesus. We don't talk about that a lot, but they did. They left their homes to follow a teacher who had nowhere to lay his head. They left their jobs and the comfort and security of everything that they had known to follow this Jesus who ended up being crucified. And they have to be wondering, they have to be wondering if they are next on the list of people who are going to get nailed to a cross. They are absolutely terrified. And Jesus comes and meets them in their fear. And what's the first thing that he says? Look back at verse 19 with me. He says, peace be with you. I know we don't talk like that. And that maybe even sounds weird. Peace be with you. If somebody came up to you and said, you'd be like, whoa, what are you, what are you about to do? Three times in eight verses, Jesus said to his disciples, peace be with you. And the idea here, the idea of this peace, the peace that it's talking about, is that of a, a blessing from God. It's a very specific type of peace, okay? It's the idea that this, that this peace is something that does not come from the world. It's not something you can grow in the ground. It's not something you can go to the store and purchase. It's a peace that we can't produce. It's a peace that we can't manufacture. And it's basically the chorus of the song that Jesus sang on the cross when he cried out, It is finished. You see, it's through his finished work, his completed work, something that we couldn't do for ourselves, a redemption that we could never afford. That's the peace that Jesus is talking about. That's the peace he's talking about. It's it's that the only way that you and I can have true peace in this life or the next is through what Jesus has accomplished at the cross. And that's what he offers us. He comes to us in our fear. He comes to us in our doubt. He comes to us knowing that we do not have the capacity to make things right. Our family, our family loves the show, um, or we like it. Love's probably a little strong. We like the show America's Got Talent. Um, we like all those shows. Britain's Got Talent. There's like basically one for every country now at this point, I think. Um, we like them all. You've probably seen at least one of those at some point. And, and, and you see these people, and they come out on stage, and they come out in their best outfit, and you can tell, like they've picked it out. They probably had their wife pick it out, right? They've, they come out on the stage, and they look their best. They come out with a big smile. This is the opportunity of a lifetime for them, and they demonstrate their talent. They come out, and they perform on that stage. Some of them sing. Some of them dance. Yeah, people come out and tell jokes. Those don't do so well. They come out and they come. They come out and do magic. My favorite guy is the one who comes and does magic tricks with a Rubik's cube. You seen this guy? I always figure if you can do a Rubik's cube, you're probably some kind of a wizard anyway. So it's just really, really impressive what this guy does. Anyway, that has nothing to do with the message. They come out on the stage. They perform their talent in front of this huge crowd in a big theater, big huge crowd, all kinds of production. It's awesome, but it's also a tryout. It's a competition. And so you're trying to do your best. You're trying to do your best so that the judges, this group of people setting apart from everyone else, so these judges uh, will pick you to move on to the next round. And one of the judges, really the only one that anybody cares about, is this guy named Simon, right? And Simon's hard to please. Simon has high expectations. I'll just say that. 
If Simon comes to your kid's like show at school, it's not going to end well. All right? You'll be proud and he'll be say he'll hit the red buzzer, I promise you. They come out, they do their thing, whatever it is, and their hope is essentially to be the best so that they'll be accepted, so that they'll be approved. And the ultimate compliment, the ultimate compliment on that show is what they call the golden buzzer. The, the golden buzzer, right? The golden buzzer is the greatest achievement that one can hope for on this show because each judge only has one opportunity, one opportunity to hit the golden buzzer for somebody. It's the apex. There's nothing higher. And so we see the little girl singing, and we see the father and son playing their guitars and singing their sweet little song, and, and somebody hits that golden buzzer, and immediately the place explodes. It like starts raining golden confetti from the sky. Everything goes slow motion. It's super weird. Like it's like the coolest thing, or music starts playing, it goes slow motion. They're, you know, it's just awesome. People are crying. We're crying. They're all hugging and celebrating. Some, somewhere in all of that, the people are celebrating this. This is this amazing thing. It's this endorsement where the judge effectively says, this one's mine. This one's my competitor in this game. I'm putting my name. I'm putting my stamp on them. I claim this one. He's on my team. This one's special. This one's the best. You know, when Jesus comes to us, it's a lot like that. It's him hitting the golden buzzer. It's him claiming us. It's him pronouncing over all of creation that this one is mine. And what Jesus says in Luke 15 is that there is more joy in heaven, more celebration, more confetti than you can imagine, more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. There's a celebration that happens. The angels and the hosts of heaven break out into singing and clapping. The place erupts in praise because Jesus has claimed one of his own, because Jesus has said, this one is mine. But it's not because we're the best. It's not because we're the most talented. It's not because we're the best looking. Like, see, we don't come to Jesus in our best outfit. We never come to Jesus in our best outfit. And I know it's a, especially on Easter, everybody's wearing their best outfit. There's people who are wearing a tie who had not worn a tie in 17 years, right? There are people who are dressed up. They are fired up. Everybody's pastel. You can tell this is the South. Y'all look good, okay? We don't come to him looking like that. We don't come to him with our hair looking perfect. We don't come to him with a clear complexion. We don't. We're not suntan. We all look sick and nasty. That's how we come to Jesus. We come out on the stage in our filth. We walk out on the stage of this earth in our sin, covered in rags, in our tattered clothing. We stand there helpless, totally incapable of doing anything that anyone would ever celebrate. And Jesus sees us in that, and he stands up, and, and I imagine it in slow motion because it looks cooler like that on TV. He walks over, and he hits that golden buzzer, and he says, that one's mine. He claims us as his own. You know, that's really what Easter is all about. That's what the resurrection is about. It's about Jesus coming to us in our grief and in our sorrow and saying, Mary, you're mine. It's about him coming to us in our fear and in our doubt and in our shame. Thomas, you're mine. 
He comes to us in the brokenness of our lives. He comes to us in the mess. He comes when we are at our absolute lowest. Like he comes to us in the broken marriage. He comes to us with the child who seems hell-bent on their own destruction, and if not that, just driving us out of our minds. He comes to us in the darkness of our past, in the darkness of our present. He comes to us in the darkness of the future that we can't even see that's coming for us. He comes running to us in that. He comes to us in the chaos of life. He doesn't run away. He, comes, he doesn't hide, but he comes and he sings over us this song in the midst of the chaos. He says what? Peace be with you. He's like the father sitting on the porch. In Luke 15, he sits there on the porch and he's been waiting and watching. And he sees us coming over the hill. He sees his son coming home in his filthy rags. And, he, and this is what he does. He hikes up his robe and he tightens up his sandals and he comes running to the prodigal. He comes to us. He doesn't say, what a fool. He doesn't say, haven't you been paying attention? Haven't you seen where I've carried you in life? Haven't you seen the family I provided for? Haven't you seen the home that you live in? Haven't you seen? He doesn't do any of that. He comes to us in the mess. And he puts his robe on us. He puts new sandals on our feet. He puts a ring on our finger. He hits that golden buzzer when we're at our worst. And he says, that one's mine. I don't know how you came in here this morning. (laughs) Maybe you feel like Mary. And sorrow and angst and heartache have sort of consumed you. Maybe you walked in here like Thomas and doubt. You just don't know about all this stuff, man. You just, I, I, I get it. People like wearing pastels once a year, but I'm not sure I believe this. Maybe you come in here with that fear and that anxiety Maybe those are your companions. However you came in here today, I want you to know that the empty tomb and the resurrected Savior are the golden buzzer of history where Jesus proclaims his victory over Satan, over sin, and over death and declares that in him you can find true and lasting peace. That's why we celebrate it. That's why we proclaim the weight and glory of Jesus every day of every week, not once a year. It's because the resurrection proves, this is what it proves. It proves that Jesus has not given up on his people. He has not run away. And even death, even death can't keep our Lord from saving his people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would do what nobody here is capable of doing. I pray that you would send your spirit to come. And, and, we, and that's confusing and we don't understand it. And it seems weird. But Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit to come and move among us. To come and speak. To come and even shout at us, Lord. Some of us need you to shout really loud. We need to call out our name and bring us to yourself or bring us back to yourself. Maybe we've run off a little bit. Maybe we've never known you. Maybe we've never heard your voice. But Lord, I pray that you would speak so loudly that we wouldn't be able to ignore it. That we wouldn't be able to go back into the mundane realities of our day-to-day comforts. 
that we would feel you pulling, that we would hear your voice, that you would call our name, and we'll come running to you. Lord, I pray that you would work your salvation in the lives of your people. Help us not to become numb to this. Help us not to think about eggs and hunting and all that sort of stuff that comes along with today. Lord, that's fun and games are always cool. But help us to hear your voice. Would you send your Holy Spirit to fall afresh on us today, to pour through the cavernous depths of our soul so that we overflow in grace and mercy and love for you. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.